Welcome to Thriving with Mental Illness, a podcast with real talk, an open and honest conversation about issues surrounding mental health. There are no topics that are off limits and no questions that aren't okay to ask. I'm Mikkel Buck, author, public speaker, and suicide survivor who's lived with mental illness for over 20 years. And with me is my guy, Adam. Hey guys, welcome back. We are excited today. We have our good friend Eliza Stapley on with us. So Eliza, welcome to the podcast and thank you for being willing. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm super honored. <laughs> Eliza is the daughter of Darlin Remington, who you'll remember we had on a little while back as a mental illness advocate. So she's done a lot of work in raising awareness and learning more about it. You've traveled back to the NAMI conference in DC, but you being her daughter are one of the reasons that kind of lit the fire under her to become an advocate, correct? Yeah, I'm, I'm the special, one of the special ones that <laughs> forced her to start learning about mental health. And don't we love it when things are forced yeah. on us in our lives? It always makes yeah. us better. It's true. It's true. So give us a little bit of background, Eliza. We've known you for, I don't know, a little over a year, but why don't you just share with everyone else kind of where you are in life and, and a brief intro about you? All right. I am, I'm Eliza. I'm 23. Um, I am a student at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. Um, I'm basically like a super super, super senior. <laughs> it took me a long time to graduate. Um, I took a, about a year and a half off for mental health reasons. Um, and also I was pregnant. So I decided let's not try and do school and have a baby. Um, but so yeah, I'm in the midst of school somewhere. I'm studying exercise and wellness. And I've been married for two and a half years to the greatest guy ever. His name is Sam. Not not your son, Sam, but the second greatest Sam ever is my son. Yes. So we'll yes. say that just for the sake of this conversation. There we go. Yeah, that's, that could be good. Um, and yeah, and I have bipolar type two, pretty sure. So that's me. You in a nutshell. That's so me. tell us in the beginning, uh, when did you first start experiencing symptoms of mental illness? Um, looking back, I mean, I think there's a difference between when I actually started experiencing symptoms and when I realized I was experiencing symptoms, right? Um, I think I started a, about end of junior year of high school and, you know, definitely senior year of high school. Um, but yeah, I definitely didn't know. I don't really even think I knew what depression was. Like, I'm sure I'd heard the term, but I really don't think I knew what it was, you know, like it just wasn't something that my family ever talked about. And I think when I heard the term mental illness, I thought of like schizophrenia, like someone with very severe issues, not someone that's maybe, you know, I just thought it was, you know, sadness. But yeah, my last high school years, I was miserable. I was so miserable, but I just thought it was teenage drama, maybe teenage know, but, angst, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So what yeah, did your symptoms look like then? Um, I, I think the biggest one for me was I loathed myself. Like I just really thought I was the scum of the earth and, um, and school was really hard. I mean, like school is 
hard in general, you know, and like, you know, junior year is that year when it's usually for most people, you know, colleges are looking at that and it's pretty intense. Um, But it wasn't so much that like the curriculum was difficult for me. I mean, it was challenging, but when I got myself to do my homework, I was fine, but it was just that I could not get myself to do my homework. You know, like it was just, I couldn't find the energy to sit down and I, to focus. And I just, and because I struggled with that, I just thought, well, I just must be a lazy, stupid person. And so, you know, blah, 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 go down the spiral of I'm this horrible person. Um, And yeah, it was just, I just did not like myself. And that made everything so hard to do when you just, when you're not your own supporter, you know, life is really hard. Well, and a lot of times you look around at other people who may not have the same challenges and you're like, well, why can't I be like that? You know, right. what's so wrong with me that I just can't be like that person or that person? Oh, and exactly. You don't really understand the, you know, the challenges. Sometimes we, you know, we talk about, it's like, you know, hiking with rocks in your backpack or something. I mean, or some resistance that other people don't have. And you're just frustrated because you're like, I should be running faster. I should be doing right. this better. Why, why is it hard? Why is this right. not just hard? Why is this so freaking hard? Right. Right. Like extra hard. Well, and, you know, I think my mom shared that my brother has bipolar type one, which has the more intense mania. And so for him, it didn't come out as much in high school, but I think he always had that extra energy. And so I was always looking at him like, the heck like he just he did so many things in high school because he just had that energy all the time and for me I was like I can barely pass my classes (laughs) let alone you know play basketball work out all the time you know be ASP you know whatever it was so that was hard too I think it's interesting that you bring up motivation a little bit you know getting started with that because I know even now sometimes I find that when I'm in a down cycle and when I don't have a lot of energy I question myself kind of like, am I just lazy? Am I just not motivated? If I just could pick myself up by the bootstraps. But like you said, it's not that that's, that's what mental illness looks like. That's a symptom specifically of bipolar type two and also depression in general. Right. Well, yeah. And it's, I think I remember like you heard the phrase like, oh, wow, they're such a go-getter, you know, and you, I think of that as someone that's motivated and I'm like, I guess I'm just not a go-getter. <laughs> <laughs> like a stop-getter? Is that, is that a thing? The opposite? Am I a stop-getter? <laughs> yeah, that, that was how I felt. So when did you realize that these were mental illness symptoms and not character deficiencies? It sounds like what you thought yeah. maybe. Yeah, that's definitely what I thought. Um, it was definitely around... I think it was yeah 2016 around when my brother had a pretty major breakdown um and so yeah we went to I think my mom shared some of this but I'll repeat um we went to an uh, NAMI the National Alliance for Mental, Mental Illness Health, Mental Illness yeah. <laughs> I should probably know that term anyways um my mom was like come to this with us you know it'll be good support for Jacoby and I was like, oh, sure, I'll help Jacoby. But I think she secretly was like, oh, you need help. <laughs> um, and so we went to a uh, support group. And that was the first time I'd ever been to anything like that. And it was like lots of people just sharing, you know, this is how I feel. I feel sad. I feel I you know, don't like myself. You know, they shared all these things. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's me. You know, like it was the first time I realized wow, one, other people feel this way, which was a great thing to realize. And also 
these people that feel this way, they've been diagnosed. And so if I feel that exact same way, I think I probably have the same, the same illness or a similar issue. And I actually remember specifically my, my cousin who went to the, the conference with us, she had um, met with a counselor before and the counselor had given her a sheet of paper that said the different ways that depression can uh, manifest. And it was all these different, you know, thought processes that your brain goes through. Um, one of them being like catastrophizing. Um, mm-hmm. What is it? Catastrophizing? Yes. Yeah. Anyways, and I read that whole paper and I said, yes, 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 yes. To every one of them. I was like, I feel all of these things. And my cousin was there and then her roommate was there who doesn't have mental illness. And I was like, read this. Do you struggle with this? And she was like, no, I've never, like, I've never felt these things in my life. Like, I can't believe you feel that way. And so that was a huge eye opener that I was like, oh, okay. Like, and you're like, yeah, me wow. neither. I don't either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah totally. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Uh-uh. Totally normal. <laughs> yeah. No, no. So I have but a question definitely. real quick. Um, when you realized that it was likely a mental illness that you were dealing with, were you relieved or were you like freaked out? <laughs> I think definitely both that I like remember specifically having an aha moment of holy cow, this piece of paper describes my brain. One, I didn't know that someone could describe my brain so accurately. It's kind of freaky. <laughs> um, but also there was a bit of relief because I thought, okay, maybe I'm not just a horrible person you know, and maybe I can get some help. And the fact that other people experience these things and that, you know, they've been able to achieve help and not hate themselves anymore, that that was that was a huge relief. So that's an interesting thing that we've never even addressed on the podcast is the self-loathing. It's very, very common. So tell me now, what are the things that helped you through that? And is that something that still rears its head frequently for you unfortunately yes <laughs> <It's pretty laughs> we <hard>. hate that <laughs> yeah but it's way better it's definitely way better um the first session of therapy i ever went to my therapist said if you were to look in the mirror at yourself what are the first thoughts and of course they were all you know ugly stupid horrible things and that was the first time anyone had asked me to reflect that way and that I just, of course, sobbed. I was like, that's so horrible. You know, why would I think that about myself? And, but I never realized that I was that critical. And I didn't realize that that wasn't everyone's brain. You know, I didn't think that I just thought, well, yeah, I just want to be a good person. And so, of course, you have to be critical. But I was, you know, over critical, just so rude. And I think one thing that has helped, you know, therapists have always said is, you know, the things that you think about yourself, would you ever say that to anyone else? And of course, like, I'm not really a rude person, I don't think. And so, you know, I would never tell someone else the things I say to myself. And so that really helps is all I have to stop and say, like, okay, would I say this to my husband? No, of course not. And so then I think, okay, I'm not going to say that to myself. But it really, I mean, it's taken lots of, lots of therapy to learn those tools of how to say, okay, I just had the thought that, you know, I'm a failure. Why did I think that, you know, maybe it's because I didn't get out of bed on time. Okay. Is that really the worst thing in the world? No. Like I'm still going to be able to accomplish what I need to. Okay. I'm not a failure. I maybe just slipped up. 
okay, that's okay. I can do that. You know, but it takes some serious, like stopping, breathing, thinking, um, which is hard to do if you don't, if you haven't been taught those tools. So therapy has been huge. Backing yourself off a cliff all the time. You know, I I feel like that is what happens in my brain too, is I, I'm constantly trying to back myself off the cliff. Right. There'll be times where you're like thinking that everything is wrong. Yeah. You know, with the family, with our marriage, with everything. And then you're just like, <laughs> wait, no, it's actually okay. That is true for me too. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that is also something interesting that other people may or may not realize is that mental illness, bipolar disorder, depression literally rewires the way that you think. And it, yeah. it kind of hijacks your brain. And because of that, the way you view the world, the way you view yourself, the way you uh, work through things is different than what other people might do or what other people naturally do. And so it requires so many tools to recognize that in yourself, get yourself out of the loop and implement the tools that you learn. Yeah. Yeah. I think one tool that can apply to whether, you know, your symptoms are self-loathing or, you know, catastrophizing, whatever they are, is the tool of, you know, dealing in truth. Because if you say, you know, I think everything's horrible, but if you think, okay, this is actually what's happening. Okay. Like what's really true, you know, what are the facts? Then that helps you not over-exaggerate and make everything this negative downward spiral is when you can just say what's really happening. And I don't know if that's how normal brains work. If people normally (laughs) just think in facts, (laughs) that would be nice. Not how mine works, but I've had to teach myself to say, okay, let's think in truth. That's so smart. I so badly wish, like, I just want one day with a brain that isn't mine, right? That's a quote unquote normal brain, just for comparison. I've only been in my own head ever. So I don't really know what other people experience as far as the thought process, how hard things are to work through. I know it feels really hard to be in my head a lot of the time, but just for comparison, I'd like to see what is, what is your backpack full of rocks feel like? (laughs) Oh, nothing. Nothing. Oh, huh. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's not that great. You're fine. <laughs> Thanks, babe. No, I, I did want to talk about you bring up the term catastrophizing. I don't think we've ever talked about that on any of our episodes, but what have you learned uh-huh. about that? Because maybe other people listening could relate. I know you're bringing up so many things. I'm like, dang, wow. we have Eliza back on so that we can expand <laughs> on each of these topics. Well, maybe, or maybe I, hopefully other people relate. Maybe I'm just a very unique breed. But, so, um, all of these things are so relevant. So yes. Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah. I catastrophizing. So like, for example, when I'm in a really bad downward place, I'll wake up in the morning and the first thought will be, this is going to be the worst day ever, <laughs> which <laughs> obviously, how could I know that? Um, that I think everything is going to be a catastrophe. You know, that's where the word comes from. And then I would snooze my alarm and snooze it probably five more times and think, oh my gosh, like what a loser. I'm the worst person. You know, everything was, is just to extremes with catastrophizing. Everything is, I'm the worst person in the world because I snoozed my alarm five times. So I might as well not try and not get out of bed because everything is worst. And then that's just how it goes the rest of the day is you just <laughs> yeah. think, to in very extreme, just thinking, you know, any little thing, oh, it's going to be the worst thing that could ever happen. Um, and that's really hard to live life like that when everything feels like it's going to be the worst. Cause then it's, then that's the thought of why should I even try? 
um, is, is so relevant because it just feels like it's so much easier to not try if, if everything else is going to be the worst. I relate to that so much. You have no <laughs> idea. It's so funny because like little things will happen. And I mean, we've shared the, my two younger kids have moved back home. They were both away at college and they're mm-hmm. back home. And uh, like, sometimes people just aren't in good moods, right? The two of them right. and me, we all live with pretty significant mental illnesses. So right. at any one time, guarantee one of us is not in a good place, right? <laughs> so sometimes our interactions yeah. are like, oh my gosh, what happens if we, if she never speaks to me again for as long as I live? Ah, right. It feels like that. And, you know, and it's so extreme. It's not the case. We both just needed to go to bed and get it fresh and try again tomorrow. Turns out we're fine. Yeah. Right. And that's a, another interesting thing that kind of you just said also is when you go into a situation, you kind of see what you're looking for. You didn't say specifically in those words. So I'm like rephrasing the way I view it. But like when you go in expecting things to be the worst, sometimes that's what you see. Yeah. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. So I'm constantly yeah. having to... T- to say things to myself, like, okay, what's the silver lining in the situation to force my brain to see the good part of it, focus on that, and then hopefully take that and move forward with it. But it's a conscious decision. It's hard to do. It it is hard. And it requires the vocabulary in your brain to be able to like, to know, oh, this is what's happening. It requires the tools like we've talked about to be able to say, okay, I need to, you know, back myself off the cliff, like you said, but it's, it's hard, but it's possible, but you just have to have those tools. Yeah. And you've talked about that. You know, we haven't even talked about medication, but mm-hmm. everything we're talking about is in addition mm-hmm. to medication. So yeah. it's not that you take medication and everything's easy. Right. No, it's like you have to take so that and everything we're talking about is that other 40% or whatever your percentages are that you. Yeah often talk about I say 60 40 I'm sure like medication got me to feeling 60% better and tools and therapy and life management and sleeping and eating and exercise took me the other 40 but 40 is a lot 40 still a lot yeah yeah well and I just I mean I know you guys talked about this a ton on the podcast but I just want to say for myself and to those listening that if you haven't tried medication yet try it (laughs) it really it really is amazing I mean it's uh, it took, a, it takes a long time as, I, as I'm sure you've shared this, but yeah, just, I fought it for multiple years because of the stupid stigma, you know, but once I tried it and once I found the right one, it is night and day. Like it's crazy how much it can help, but I already had those tools in place from years of therapy. So that when I had medication and now I have the tools and exercise and all that, like you said, it, it really can be doable. Um, but yeah, medication can, can really be a game changer. I want to talk to you about the stages in life that you've gone through while dealing with mental illness. So when you started dating Sam, was that something that affected your relationship and affected your dating years? Yes, 100%. Um, It's actually pretty funny. Our like first, when we first started dating, like the day we decided to become, you know, serious, um, I was trying to convince Sam not to date me. <laughs> I was telling him, I was like, I'm super depressed. And I, you know, I really struggle with school and blah, 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 all these things. I was like, you did not want a part of this. <laughs> this is a bad time. And he was like, uh, no, I really like you. And, um, and he's so wonderful. Like he actually said to me, no, I, 
I want to help you through these issues. Like I want to be there for you. I think you're wonderful. And I want to help you see that, which was just, you know, exactly what I needed to hear. But yeah, it totally affected dating because I just, you know, I didn't think I was that great of a catch. So I was like, don't, don't date me. (laughs) Yeah. I've heard that from other young people that are dating is they just feel like if they know this about me, they'll never stick around. I had dated someone before semi-seriously and it's not that he wasn't, you know, he never said, oh, you have mental illness. I don't like you because of that, but he just wasn't equipped to deal with it. Um, And that was really hard. And, you know, I didn't feel loved from him because of that, but I'm so glad we broke up obviously because I found a person that is equipped to deal with it and loves me so much and knows how, I mean, Sam didn't know much about mental illness before we got married, but he has a very loving heart. Not that the other guy didn't have a loving heart, but he was just maybe more patient and more, he was more in tune with his emotions and his feelings. So he was able to understand the complexity of emotions I was feeling. And so it, it really comes down to, you know, finding the right person but also I had to be in a place where, although I was still struggling with the self-loathing and I told him not to date me, I had still come quite a, quite a ways and was able to say to him when I was struggling, how I was struggling and how I needed his help. Because without that, then it would have just been him like, uh, what's going on? And me being like, uh, I don't know, you know? <laughs> yeah. But, well, I guess that I can speak from the husband's side of things or the person that doesn't have mental illness, but I can see things in Mikkel and the reason I love her, but a lot of times when you're dealing with it, all you see is the illness, right? <laughs> you think this is entirely who I am. Right. And when people from the outside can see, no, there's lots of other parts of you. <laughs> there's right. lots of other, this is one small part. Whereas, you know, Mikkel felt like it was like 99% of who she was. <laughs> And I'm like, no, it's like 20%, you know, and we've got all this other 80% of awesome things that we enjoy doing together. And so I I think that is Sam sounds amazing. We're definitely going to have to have him on as well, because I would (laughs) love to get his perspective. Everybody just listens to me all the time from that standpoint. It'd be nice to get somebody else. Listening to you (laughs) talk about that um, reminds me of the song I have on my playlist that I think is so fitting for this. It's called what's left of you by cord overstreet. And you say that you're such a mess, but frankly, you're not that hard to take You're, I love what's left of you kind of is, is the message of the song. Like you think yeah. you're a mess, but I love what's left of you. So I, I love that song so much that's for that sweet. reason. And you say the same thing to me. So thank yeah. you. Yeah, that's really sweet. So as you progressed in your relationship with Sam, he was learning. It sounds like you also were learning what you needed and how did that affect you guys moving forward and getting engaged and being young married couple? Great question. I would say there were definitely moments where it was really heavy, where I was really depressed and that felt like it wasn't just when we first started dating that I tried to convince her not to date me. That was definitely throughout <laughs> where I would say, okay, now you can break up with me this time for real. This t- you know, I'm, I'm really struggling. I'm sure you don't want to deal with this. Why don't you just break up with me? You know, that, that was throughout and that was hard, but luckily, like Adam, you said, 
Sam saw more in me than just my mental illness. I was, I really was seeing that I, I felt like my mental illness was me 99% of the time. And so it, it, I, I didn't understand why he'd want to be with someone that was embodied depression. That's what I thought I was. Um, but luckily he really did see so much more and he would, and he would tell me that, you know, he would make sure to say, you're not just depressed. You're funny. You're smart. You know, all these things that I love about you and I'm staying with you because I love those things about you. And like, I'm just because you're having a bad day, I'm not going to leave. And I think that's something that was so powerful was just that he always reminded me, I'm not leaving you because you have a bad day or because you have bad weeks or months. I'm, I'm with you, you know, through the end. And that really helped. So when did you start believing him? <laughs> Yesterday. <Do you> when- know? <laughs> <laughs> Sing it, sister. <laughs> yeah. It depends on the day. He actually would stick around. Um, obviously, like we, you know, we got married, turns out. And through the whole dating and engagement process, I was like, oh, for sure, it's not going to happen. But he, he stuck through and we're married. And that's, that's for us, that's an eternal choice. You know, that's not something we take lightly. So, but also just time and time again, I'll be having a breakdown and I'll say, just, just go. I don't know why I do this, but I'll just say, just go be with your friends. Like <laughs> I would just tell him to go somewhere else because I was convinced he wouldn't want to be with me. And he would always remind me, no, I'm going to stay with you. And it's just, I think it's just from time and time again, even if it doesn't happen too much, thankfully, but even if he has to cancel plans with his friends or he's missed a class or two, because he said, you know, I need to be with you right now. I need you to know that I love you, that I'm here for you. Um, and so that, that really helps me believe him because he, it's not just his words, definitely his actions. And so I'm really lucky to, yeah. How long did you guys date then before you were married and how long have you been married now? We've been married for two and a half years. Um, and we actually didn't date super long, um, because we grew up together. So I knew him my whole life um, and we like went on dates on and off for probably eight months before we got serious. And then we, we dated for five months once we were serious and got married. So it wasn't a long, like when we were official, but we dated and knew each other forever. So, mm-hmm. and that was really helpful because I think I didn't struggle with mental illness my entire life in high school, like the beginning years of high school, we were, we were um, good friends. And so he knew me before I felt like I really struggled. And yeah. so that was nice. Like he, he, he knew the whole package of me. He didn't just see depressed Eliza. You know, he knew what I was before and what I could be. And he saw all the in-between. Who you really are. Instead yeah. of like your view of I am depression. He's like, oh no, Eliza is smart and funny and amazing and beautiful. And like, okay. so fun to be around. I think that's something that also helped us because we knew each other too, before I kind of hit my big crash. And Mm -hmm. that was one of the reasons why I felt like, yeah, I'm in the middle of this hot mess at the moment, but Adam knows, you know me. Yeah. 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 So now you went through a pregnancy and have had a really hard life situation hit you now, um, where you've lost, uh, some babies, which is heartbreaking. And we're so sorry for your loss. Thank you. I want to ask you kind of through that process, like what did going through pregnancy look like with mental illness? Yeah. So I was pretty scared to get pregnant just because, you know, you hear that 
your hormones are all over the place. And I was like, well, my hormones are already all over the place. So <laughs> Can they get any more over, all over the place? Yeah. Yeah. But thankfully I was in a place with my medication journey um, that I had just right after my first trimester, I got on the medication I'm on now. Um, that has just, you know, changed everything. It's been super, super helpful. So that was really, I think, really lucky and that I got that. So yeah, pregnancy and mental health. It was definitely, you just have to stay consistent. Like you just can't change. You can't, there are some medications. You know, I obviously had to work very closely with my psychiatrist because I told her before, we're trying to get pregnant. So I don't want to be on anything right now that will inhibit that or cause problems. And so that was important. And then, you know, all throughout the pregnancy, um, we make sure I was taking the right dose to make sure that what I was on was, you know, pregnancy approved. Um, that was really important, but yeah, just, I think just staying consistent. Like I just had to, I, I had to always take my meds, even if I was throwing up all day long, you know, it was like, you still have to still have to take something. Still have to take yeah. your meds. And, and definitely sleeping was so important, you know, cause in pregnancy you're already exhausted, but just also with the added need for um, keeping my mental health stable. I had a very stable, I think I slept like 10 to 12 hours, which was awesome. Um, (laughs) But yeah, that was really helpful. Well, did your, did the psychiatrist, were they concerned about that? Or was it like, oh no, you can still get pregnant. We just have to do it this way. Or was it more, were they more apprehensive and like, uh, I don't know. This is kind of risky. What was their, how did they handle it? I was it? surprised. I was, I was apprehensive. You know, I, I went in thinking they were going to be like, oh, I don't know. You're going to have to go off your medication. And I know that's the case for some people, um, which is really unfortunate. But for me, I guess I was lucky. I don't know. My psychiatrist wasn't concerned. She said, I have a list. Like I've dealt with this before. Um, I think my psychiatrist specialized in women, women's health. And so she's like, I've had plenty of clients that have been pregnant on medication. I know the good, the bad. So I, you know, I'm here for you. So I was more nervous than she was. And she said, I have this one medication that's for bipolar. And well, it's actually funny. We, the first time we ever met, we we Skyped in the midst of my first trimester. I think I was like nibbling on Cheerios during the (laughs) time. Yeah. (laughs) I wasn't feeling too sick. But that's when I, we first discovered that I probably don't just have depression, but I probably am struggling with bipolar type two. So we told my psychiatrist and we, the first bipolar medication we tried is Latuda. And it, thankfully she said it's been super safe with a lot of pregnant women. Um, and it was the right fit for me. So I got really lucky in that sense. That's amazing now. And there are so many more options now. Yeah. Back when I was having kids. I had my third and that's when we realized I had bipolar and not just depression. And so the medications that I were put on were not pregnancy safe. So that was the end of having kids for me, because to me, I mean, I was at attempted suicide and it it felt like it's not safe for me to not be on medication. Right. Also, there's no, way I could have handled any more than three kids. I barely <laughs> hung on for dear life. So, you That's know, the lovely the kids are. if you're listening, kids, you're wonderful. You're, we love you so much, <laughs> so much, but it was a different situation back then with medication. And so it's so fortunate that there right. are so many more options now that are pregnancy safe and it doesn't inhibit your choices the same way it kind of has in the past for some people. 
Right. Yeah. So that's, that's such a great thing that it's, there's so many options now. So getting into then some of the harder part, do you want to talk a little bit about your pregnancy and about your babies? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, pregnancy was hard. (laughs) I think for most people it is hard. Um, but yeah, I, it was quite the whirlwind. So at 10 weeks, we went in for our first ultrasound and we were hit with the news that I was pregnant with twins, which was crazy. Um, we had, before the ultrasound happened, the doctor told us we don't, I don't have any twins in my family. So they were like, Oh, then the odds of you getting, having twins is one in 200. So we were like, okay, no twins for us. And then he puts on the ultrasound. It's like, Oh, look, there's two. So that was crazy. Um, so for four weeks in between our appointments, we were just, you know, on cloud nine. So excited, a little bit terrified, but really excited. Um, but then unfortunately at 14 weeks, we found out that one of the twins had passed away. And so that was really, really hard. Obviously miscarriage is really sad and, but it put us in a weird position because one of our babies did survive. So it was this weird, you know, we were obviously devastated to have lost a child, but, you know, still so excited to have one baby doing okay. And then throughout the pregnancy, we, you know, went to our checkups and we found out that our baby had a heart defect and we had so many ultrasounds, Um, but with each ultrasound, unfortunately, we just kept finding more issues and it just got worse and worse and worse. Um, And so it was decided that we would have, I would need to deliver up at the University of Utah Hospital because they are connected to primary children, which is one of the like best children's care facilities, I think in the world, they said, like it's really top notch. Um, So we delivered there and unfortunately, just basically every hour, it felt like they found more and more issues with our son, his name was Theo and he was beautiful. uh, he was born on October 24th, so pretty recently. But yeah, they, his sweet little body just wasn't made correctly um, for some reason. And things just kept failing. So they told us that, you know, surgery wasn't going to be an option. He actually was struggling so much that his body wouldn't be able to survive the surgery. So we made the really hard, but we felt it was the right decision to um, take him home. And so we had 18 beautiful hours with him at home and we got to hold him and he wasn't connected to any wires or tubes, which was such a blessing. And we just got to be with him and and hold him until he passed away. When you posted those pictures, it was so touching and moving that you would share that. And how lucky that you got to have him for 18 hours. I can't imagine the heartbreak that that was. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. What do you think? And you force us to cry. What is this? <laughs> I know. I know. Just bringing it up. But how do you think that your mental illness affected your pregnancy and dealing with the loss of the babies? Was it harder? Yeah. Um, crazy enough, I think my mental health, my mental illness actually helped in some ways with our grief because I had experienced experience being in the depths of of discouragement I I felt you know on down days for me I just felt so so miserable I I just 
hated my life. I just thought, you know, the world was coming to an end. I just was so literally deeply depressed. You know, that's why it's called depression. I was so sad. And Sam and I had learned how to deal with that when it was just a mental health issue. We'd learned how to deal with severe sadness. We'd learned that we need to sleep. We need to shower. We need to eat. We need to stay together. We need to have boundaries with other people. We need to, I need to communicate to him how I'm feeling exactly what I'm feeling. You know, for me, that was, I don't know why, but that's something that's really helpful for me is like the moment I start feeling something, I just need to tell Sam, I need to tell him, Hey, this is what's happening right now. I need you to be here for me. This is exactly what's going on. And so we'd had those tools in place because of my mental illness. And then during pregnancy, thankfully, I was on medication that was really helping me with that 60, I would say for me, 70% um, that although we were going through the hardest times in our life, losing a child in pregnancy, and then also losing our Theo after he was born, we had those tools in place. I knew that when I was really sad, I needed to be with Sam. I knew what my limits were. I already knew what, I already knew that I needed people to take care of me. You know, thankfully, people are so kind. And so many people reached out, wanted to bring us dinner, wanted to, you know, send us gift cards, all these things. And I think it can be easy to not want people to serve you. You know, people can be closed off. But because I had struggled so much with depression, I knew that I was someone that needs help, that we were, we were able to accept that. You know, people are so generous and we were just, we knew that's what we needed. And so, yeah, having, being severely depressed, surprisingly, has really helped us through these past um, few months. That's such an interesting and, and wonderful perspective, frankly. It's kind of like, hey, I've been here before. I, yeah. It's really hard. It sucks. But I also know what to do. And I know how to get through it. Yeah. The second thing that you said is something we just addressed on our last episode is the importance of accepting help and how really it's a sign of wisdom and maturity. So many people feel like it's a sign of weakness and I can do it myself. And it's the opposite. Like when you're strong, you understand what you need. When you're strong, you can accept help. When you're strong and wise, you know what to ask for. And that's exactly what you did through that whole thing. Right. We've talked about mental illness is just one type of hard thing that people experience in life. And so in many ways, you can connect with people who have experienced other hard things because the, the core of how you deal with it is very similar. And the yeah. fact that with mental illness, you, the skills you learn, there translated to a loss of a child, which is a different kind of hard, but it could still you know, you've learned and grown through the process so that it was easier to translate the, you know, the things that you've learned into other hard things. Yeah. Yeah. It really was amazing. I mean, I'd never experienced losing a child before, obviously, but like I said, I had experienced being severely sad and, you know, unfortunately the loss of a child that doesn't go away with medication, but the tools we've learned of of how to cope, how to survive when you're, when you're just so depressed, how to just, just keep going, just, just take it literally hour by hour, day by day. We, I think we, we felt equipped for this loss, you know, obviously we didn't want it and I still don't want it, but I didn't feel like I couldn't handle it. I mean, sometimes I do, <laughs> but yeah. for the most part, we feel like we know how to survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's an amazing skill to have in a marriage and for the rest of your life. 
and you're yeah. young to already have that. Most people don't have that at your stage in life. What's something that you wish you knew before you had started the whole mental illness experience? Um, I think I wish, I wish I knew like what I had said about, you know, when I found out, when I read that piece of paper that said all those different thought processes that people with mental illness have, I wish I knew that that was not normal. <laughs> I think if, I had, if I had known earlier that my brain was doing something to me that wasn't healthy, I would have gotten help so much sooner. I would have, and I think I would have started medication sooner too, because for so long, I just thought, you know, like we've talked about, it was a character flaw. I just thought that if I just try harder, if I just, if only I was a better person, but that's, you know, that's not the case when your brain is fighting you, you can't use your brain to fight back. Right. I think you said <laughs> yeah. that before. And so I wish I knew, I wish I had seen that paper about like three years earlier. You know, I wish I'd known that there were things going on in my brain that I could learn to change, that it wasn't just me having a bad, you know, just, I was just unlucky. I mean, I guess it is unlucky to get mental health. I don't know, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I wish I knew that there was help and that, that, that wasn't normal, that that wasn't healthy and that I could change it. To wrap up then, what would your advice be to other people? To those that are struggling with mental health. I mean, as much as I, well, maybe I, I was going to say, just keep going, but I hated hearing that. When I <laughs> but as much as annoying it is to hear, it is true. Um, just that it will get better, you know, um, I think not to give up on yourself. I, like I, we've talked about, I struggled with the self-loathing and I really gave up on myself. I just thought, well, there's whatever. I'm just the worst. That's just the way it is. But I hope people know that you're not the worst. <laughs> I mean, I know, I don't know who's listening right now, but I can guarantee you're not the worst and that you're a great person. And and you just need to find that support team, whether it's therapist, psychiatrist, family, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever it is, you just need to find that, that team that, that's going to lift you up. And to those that are the team, the cheerleaders, I think for me, the most powerful thing is when people tell me like, they're never going to leave me. Just let them know that you love them. You're there no matter what. Seriously, even if it's day after day after day after day of having a bad day, we need you, we need to know that you're going to be there because that helps for me, that helped me have less bad days, literally just knowing that Sam was never going to leave me. And same with my mom, you know, as you had her on, she's great. She's the best. Um, and she always told me, I don't care if you drop out of school. I don't care if you never get out of bed. I love you. I'm here for you. I'm going to show up. And that would already lift me even just 10%, which is better than nothing. So that's always really powerful. I think what you're talking about is trust. You need people that you can trust and you don't yeah. know who you can trust when you're in the middle of it. You have a lot of people around you, maybe even a lot of people that love you, but you're not sure who you can really trust. And when you find a few solid people, like you're talking about your husband and your mom, and you know, no matter what, they're never going anywhere. I mean, that's a deep level of trust and it is necessary to yeah. heal and to grow that's such yeah. amazing advice for the cheerleaders, though, to know, like, this is what's the most meaningful to you is that I'm here no matter what. I'm here forever. Yeah. So yeah, that's powerful words of advice. So thank you for sharing that. 
Yeah. Eliza, it's been amazing to have you on today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot about myself, turns out. <laughs> like, wow, turns out I'm really, really smart about this. <laughs> no, thank you. Such it's been fun. Thing. To all of you listening, thank you so much for coming back again and again. If you have people in your life who have experienced things like Eliza sharing, please share the podcast with them, especially young marrieds going through pregnancy. There are a lot of things that we haven't talked about and that maybe aren't talked about in other circles. So share this with them. I think it will really, really help the things that Eliza has had to say. Yeah, so, I agree. A lot of good stuff today. Yeah. <laughs> if you have topics that you'd like to see covered or questions that you have, you can submit them on Instagram at thriving with mental illness. If you like the podcast, rate it. And again, share it with a friend. Remember, there are no topics, draft limits, and no questions that aren't okay to ask. We will see you next time. See you next time.